everyone to another edition of Streaming Water Podcast. Thanks for listening today. We're here to talk about industrial pretreatment. I don't know if a lot of folks know what pretreatment is. It's a mystery, and here to unwrap that mystery of, of exactly what industrial pretreatment is is uh, Dave Louch with us today. Dave is the industrial pretreatment coordinator at South Platte Renew, where I work, and he's been in the industry for a number of years. Has a great background. Has been uh, well. I'll, I'll let him tell you as he introduces himself. But Dave's here today to to answer all of uh, our questions or my questions on industrial pretreatment. So welcome, Dave. Thanks for being here today. Well, thank you, Blair. Thank you. Could you uh, could you just start by giving us a little overview of kind of your history, how you got in this? It's a unique niche in in the environmental and and wastewater field. How you got there and 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 a little bit about your history. All right, the the sewer police. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Blair. Um, yeah, that's funny you say special. I've been told I've been special all my life. <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> Well, um, as far as my background, um, my uh, career's taken a few twists and turns throughout the years, but all good. Um, actually, I started out wanting to working. I was working on a photojournalism degree and had grand plans of being a, a National Geographic photographer nice. and all that. Um, but I did get a photography job uh, straight out of high school, working for Marathon Oil. And that was a great job. Um, got to do a lot of fun things, fly around in helicopters and take aerial photos and a little bit of everything there. But about five years into it, uh, they decided to transfer that position to Finley, Ohio. Oh. And didn't want to move to Finley, but uh, they offered me a, a great alternative. Uh, they had an opening in the environmental and safety department and they needed uh, someone to operate a GC and uh, mobile laboratory and my first question was well how do you spell GC (laughs) (laughs) so I learned how to run a gas chromatograph and uh, a number of other analytical tests and I just I had a mobile laboratory and they sent me all over up to Alaska, just wherever they had operations and uh, run analytical samples uh, for the oil field and the oil industry. I was up in Alaska when the Valdez ran aground. Oh. That was an interesting scenario. I remember that. Scenario. What year? When was that? <clears throat> it was the early 90s. I want to say 91, yeah. 92. But um, a lot of travel, and I worked out of a research center here in Denver in Littleton, uh, which was a great playground for me because they had all the sciences. They had chemistry, applied science for oil field industry, and uh, really enjoyed getting into all that. And also, I monitored, I uh, was responsible for what was called a pretreatment permit that was issued by Littleton Inglewood, this facility. And... One day I got a phone call from the pretreatment administrator and said that uh, they had an opening and would I be interested in applying. And I thought, well, this may be a good change of career. And I applied and somehow got the job. Nice. <laughs> I think everybody else turned them down and <laughs> I was the last, last one standing. So I uh, went into industrial pretreatment uh, back in, I think it was 93, and been in pretreatment ever since. It's a 
fantastic profession. Good. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, from National Geographic photographer to, uh, <laughs> or hopeful to uh, pre-treatment coordinator. That's an interesting path there. Can you, uh, speaking of pre-treatment, can you give us kind of a high-level view of, uh, an overview of what pre-treatment is and uh, what it's, what, why we need it? Sure. Um, you know, I, there's not too many degrees out there for sewer police, <laughs> and that's basically what pretreatment is, is we regulate discharges from industries to the sanitary sewer and um, save, for example, like metal finishers, chrome platers. Uh, you know, the EPA requires us to per- permit certain types of industries. There's 60-plus permitted types of industries. So basically we're in just about any place that has a light bulb and a drain uh, doing inspections. And, and that's what's fascinating about it is you're in just so many different types of industries and just seeing what they, they have the potential to discharge and uh, what they can do to harm the collection system and the treatment plant. And, you know, basically just protecting our water resource. Yeah. Do you feel like if you find something, it's usually intentional or is it a lot of educating the industries as well as enforcing or how what's the split between (laughs) intentional and and them just not thinking about oh if that goes down the drain it could hurt hurt Mm -hmm. the sewer plant yeah that's a good question i you know unfortunately uh, some of it is intentional um you know if um somebody wants to save some money and rather than having the cyanide hauled off they'll want to dump it down the drain and that's intentional so then that gets into a whole nother issue of criminalities uh, but then on some cases where it is not intentional and people just don't know it's it's the old adage you know out of sight out of mind and, and a lot of people don't know what ends up with that waste oil or whatever once they dump it down the drain yeah it's a good high level if uh, I tracked you for a week <clears throat> What kind of stuff would would they be doing on a you know on a weekly basis? Um, that's what's fascinating about this profession is um, you really don't know what you're going to encounter during the week. You have some standard things. We have what's called permitted industries that uh, we have um, relationships with. We have to permit them, issue discharge permits, and so that's the typical. Um, administrative type of work that we have to deal with you know how they how they discharge and when they discharge but then you don't know what's going to happen next when that phone rings Um, I got a call last night at seven o'clock that um, the facility just dumped 30,000 gallons of milk down the drain which can cause issues here at the plant Um, A to Z I had a facility that painted planes and took the hazardous waste and uh, Rather than having it hauled off, they'd load up a cement truck. They also own a cement business, and they'd put the hazardous waste in with the cement and make somebody's driveway the next day out of it. So, you know. Turning their problem into a bigger problem. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. And so a little, you know, a little bit of everything. It's, it's, it's a fascinating it's job, and it's uh, interesting to see what people will do when they have uh, a waste to get rid of, but they want to save money before before that and so a little bit of everything like i say we're in just about it all sorts of facilities that uh, you never knew existed yeah one of them i i think that is visible or people do hear about is 
stop pouring grease down the drain and the, and the need to, to not have grease in the drains. What's your involvement with, with that? Yeah, we're involved with that. Um, you know, we have a pretty substantial what's called an oil and grease program. And uh, one of the issues we have is uh, some unscrupulous grease haulers that pump grease traps connected to restaurants. They'll pump the trap and then find a storm drain and dump it into a storm drain. And I've had a number of uh, stormwater detention ponds full of thousands of gallons of grease where they would be dumping from pumping. So that's one issue. And then, you know, like you say, people just dumping grease down the drain, which causes blockages and problems at the wastewater plant. So we, we try to get a handle on that. There's a big push a few years back, SSO, sanitary sewer overflows, mm-hmm. which a lot of those I think are caused by grease and other blockages. But mm-hmm. that's, it's a big deal when that uh, large amounts of sewage get out of where it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it doesn't end well. Yeah, it's never, never a good yeah. thing. Yeah, the, the restaurant industry is actually, I think, the largest industry in the United States. Oh. And... Um, they produce a lot of grease, and that grease has to go somewhere. Yeah. And it has to be pumped and disposed of. So we, we we try to monitor that and make sure it ends up in the right place. You know, I know most of your work, or a lot of it, is outside the fence, working with businesses and customers. What uh, is your involvement inside the plant with uh, the different departments? Like you say, a lot of our work is outside of the plant. You know, the collection system, our district's 108 square miles, over 300,000 people and thousands of uh, industrial users. But uh, we also have to coordinate uh, with the plant staff here to make sure that, you know, for instance, that, that milk spill last night is affecting the process and so we have to coordinate with the the operations staff on that and keep an eye on how it's how the plant's working and what processes are being affected so yeah we 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 work with them and then collection system uh, workers we coordinate with them you know i've had a number of industries want to dump cyanide down the drain and the last thing we want is a, a utility worker inside of a manhole that that cyanide's coming towards them, and so basically, you know, just to protect worker health and safety, yeah. and whether it's here at the plant or out in the collection system. Good. All right. Well, let's switch gears. I forgot this at the beginning, but uh, I'm not going to forget it now. It's the interesting question time. So the interesting question for today is uh, what's the most expensive thing you've broken? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're not asking my wife <laughs> that question. She might listen. You yeah. remember that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we don't have enough time for that. <laughs> I'd say the most expensive thing I broke was my neck uh, playing hockey. Oh. I, I found out that uh, when you chip uh, and fall into the boards, the boards don't move much. <laughs> and so I ended up having my neck fused as a result of, of that. So that kind of ended my, my hockey career. Oh. But uh, it wasn't a cheap a cheap uh, sport to do after that. Yeah, I imagine. I thought, I thought, you'd, I thought it'd be like a, a GC or you know, <laughs> photography camera or something. I didn't think of a body part. Those are, those are really expensive there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What do you do uh, if you don't do hockey now? What do you do when you're not doing pre-treatment and, and at work? What are your hobbies? Ironically enough, a lot of 
the hobbies that I like to do do surround water, whether it's frozen or, or thawed. <laughs> um, used to get into mountaineering quite a bit, wintertime mountaineering, um, but uh, decided that was too dangerous of a sport. Uh, then got into scuba diving, and my wife and I do a lot of scuba diving. She, in particular, has gotten into taking people that are handicapped scuba diving. Oh. So she's in a program through Craig Hospital that they take either quadriplegics or, you know, people that are paralyzed to some degree scuba diving. Wow. So that's kind of the, the latest and greatest. Yeah, that's cool. Well, kudos to her. That's a yeah, nice, it's, it's uh, yeah. quite an accomplishment. I don't even think I could take care of myself uh, <laughs> underwater, let alone someone else. You know, helping someone else. So yeah, yeah we good. We took um, a person that was a quadriplegic scuba diving, and so that was a real eye opener. Where you know they couldn't use their hands or their feet, so you were swimming for them, and and uh, this person did really well, and it was just such a. Uh, overwhelming highlight you know just to watch her come up to the surface with a big smile on her yeah. face good yeah. all right well i think uh it's time for the mid-show segment now in today's mid-show segment i found an article that uh interested me it's from u.s news it's by lauren stroh in new orleans it's called can recycled glass help restore Louisiana's eroding coastline? So I'll read a little bit. Dave Clements, and I like this uh, the name of this bar, owner of Snake and Jake's Christmas Club Lounge, <laughs> a beloved dive bar in New Orleans, has watched Louisiana's coast shrink year after year. I'll just summarize the article. It's pretty long. You can look it up on- online. Uh, just Google U.S. News and eroding Louisiana coastline. Anyway, I guess the the coastlines are, are shrinking or disappearing. There, he says he used to go fishing down in De La Croix area. Me and my buddy would go out on a flatboat. Clemens remembers finding a little spot, a little island where he and his friend would go fishing. Then he went back; it was gone. So the these uh, the sand and the coastlines are eroding away, which causes issues with hurricanes and flooding, and and that your buffer's gone. I guess it says to date, the southern coast of Louisiana has lost land roughly the size of the state of Delaware from its eroding beaches and marshes. Uh, Clements wondered if a solution to this problem had been hiding in plain sight. He looked at his uh, 55 gallon trash cans full of empty beer bottles every night uh, at the bar he owned and was like can I do something with that so I guess it happens a pair of Tulane students also recognized this problem and asked could those containers those bottles be blasted to sand transforming waste into critical resource that could be repurposed to reinforce the state's eroding coastlines two grad students formed glass half full and you could google that it kind of tells their story of of uh, this co- this company that they formed to break down bottles into sand, which I guess is a uh, diminishing resource. And so they're turning glass into sand. They use it, they use it for, I guess, hurricane relief to fill sandbags. They're hoping to put it on, I don't think they have, but you know, restored <clears throat> beaches and coastline. So I just thought that was interesting if you want to know more about it. You, well, I can read you some stats. Glass Half Full has already been successful. You know, they, they say we not, may not be able to do much with the beaches. I mean, that would be a lot of sand, but they're already successful in reducing waste. In their first year, the pair helped divert over 650,000 pounds of glass from landfills. 
Uh, it made a difference at Snake and Jake's, where Clement realized that every week his 55-gallon garbage cans were mostly filled with glass bottles. So now he hauls them to this recycling center, this kind of uh, upstart. I think it was funded by GoFundMe kind of, mm-hmm. you know, grassroots mm-hmm. deal. But if you want to learn more, look at uh, Glass Half Full on uh, Google that, and you can learn more. But I thought that was interesting. I don't know. I've never heard of glass being turned into sand but it makes sense i guess yeah is this down in uh new orleans yeah down in new orleans but we should go we should go to the snake and jake (laughs) go find it well i guess after mardi gras they'd have enough glass to to fill up the whole beach with sand yeah (laughs) that's true all right well let's get back to our topic at hand which is industrial pre-treatment so one of my questions is what types of industries or businesses out there are you most concerned with which which industries pose the most threat to the plant or to worker and health and safety so we have to look at uh, particular industries that do a a specific process Uh, epa requires us to like i said earlier that if you're a metal finisher then we have to permit that facility and that's a legal document that controls what they can and can't discharge. For example, some chemicals they use in a a circuit board printer can kill this plant if they discharge it, and so we've had some experience with that in the past. So we have to go into those industries and look at all the chemicals that they have and what they have a potential of discharging and and control those discharges. Um, So that's one aspect, um, but then the other aspect is other facilities that may go under the radar of not being a, a categorical facility, the EPA categorical facility, but uh, that may have potential. So, you know, we've run into some industries that have a particular type of process that they they do discharge to us, and then it'll either corrode out sewer lines. I had, a, believe it or not, a, a water purification uh, facility that uh, we're dumping about um, anywhere from 1,500 to 2,000 gallons a day of low pH, acidic pH, and it took out about a mile of a sewer line, wow. So, which happened to be by a hospital so it's hard to take a hospital offline to repair that so you know facilities like that but uh, again it's just amazing what's out there you know it's this is a chemical intensive world and there's so many chemicals used for so many different types of manufacturing and it's our job to make sure that you know people aren't harmed by by the disposal of those chemicals or the collection system or, or to kill the plant so one day we'll be in a facility that makes satellites and just a extremely high-tech type of facility. And the next day we'll we'll need a police, a police escort to get into a, a facility. So yeah, A to Z, A to Z. Sounds like it. I'm sure there's a a variety of businesses, a variety of sophistication, and probably a variety of uh, attitudes when you show up mm-hmm. if if you are. The sewer cop, as you as you <laughs> facetiously uh, called yourself, what what happens if the sewer cop shows up and you and you run into someone who doesn't want to see you? Yeah, that that can be interesting. I always joke about when we walk in the front door, everybody scampers out the back door. <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, sometimes the job can be pretty tough. Um, you do run into some people that have criminal backgrounds and that's how they, they run their business. And you have to think about personal safety when you enter those, those facilities. Um, early on in my career, pre-treatment career, I uh, was doing an inspection and walked into a maintenance garage, I thought, and they were actively cooking meth wow a meth lab just uh, <laughs> right down the street from here mm. and so that that was a interesting experience i imagine this position is a little different than a traditional plant employee water plant wastewater mm-hmm. plant where you're working at the plant site on the plant equipment i can imagine it's you got to be pretty nimble to go figure out a process mm-hmm. figure out where the where the issues that you care about might be and, mm-hmm. and get someone to comply with the, with your regulations. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of people just don't realize that, you know, the water they flush down the drain ends up as somebody's drinking water, you know, a few miles down, down the river. Yeah. And, you know, like Dillon Reservoir, I think, is a good example. That has, I think, three wastewater plants that discharge into it. And then um, Climax Mine discharges into it. And then that water from Dillon Reservoir ends up in Denver water. So. Yeah, I think I've heard, I don't know the exact stat, but uh, on the way from uh, the mountains to the, to the ocean, a drop of water has been recycled seven times mm-hmm. or something like that. I'm, I might be making all this up. It's something like that. Like People are surprised when you tell them your waste is someone's drinking water. Yeah. It grosses people out, and we're talking indirect potable reuse or you know whatever you call it but it's you tell that to the layperson and they say what i didn't know that (laughs) it is a cycle and they are talking you know uh more and more about just direct reuse of Mm -hmm. of wastewater i mean the technology is there to to clean it up well enough to turn it into drinking Mm -hmm. water which is a whole nother a whole nother issue to freak people out oh yeah yeah (laughs) to do a whole show on that one yeah yeah, and I think that even makes our job even more important. You know, if, if they're recycling the water, um, we've got to be able to control what what gets to the wastewater plant. Yeah, yeah. Tell me a little bit about this organization you're in that, that deals with pretreatment. Um, early on, um, one of the problems um, we were having in pretreatment, and this is going on 30 years ago, was just uh, the lack of education. Like I say, people don't usually come out of college with uh, sewer police degrees. <laughs> so the need to have a community of uh, ed- people that could educate uh, was in need. So uh, uh, one of the associations that was created back then was called SIPCA, which is Colorado Industrial Pretreatment Coordinators Association. And it's uh, been going uh, on ever since, and it's an uh, education um, uh, platform and we have conferences and uh, training opportunities for people that are just coming into the environmental field and it's a good uh, resource for for new people and and people it's a it's a good uh, community to bounce ideas back and forth on you know we um, have a quite the communication structure of you know i've got this industry moving into my district and i know that this person say in boulder or somewhere else has the same industry and how do they handle them and what do they what do they have in place so it's a good good help there i've seen that throughout the industry it's good to have a group of of 
either whether it's pre-treatment laboratory mm -hmm. operators mm -hmm. get together and, and share information because it's amazing what what you can learn just by getting in a room with mm -hmm. some other people who do the same thing as you well good well maybe you can talk a little bit maybe the history i mean the clean water act was like 1972, I think, pre-treatment, when, when did it start up? In the 80s, they realized that, you know, wastewater plants were getting killed from discharges from, you know, auto manufacturers and, and things like that. So the need to tighten up on those regs uh, came into place in the late 80s and early 90s. And so the majority of the regulations started in the early 90s, which... To me, it has always been a surprise because you would think that, you know, water regulations would have been around for many years prior to that, but, but they weren't. Yeah. You know. it, it's always weird to me when I look like, you know, when you think like, well, the Clean Water Act's only been there since 72. What did they do before that? You know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's 2021 now, so it's been in place for a while, but really these things haven't haven't been around for 200 years like we think sometimes, you know? Yeah. It, it's a real eye-opener. I had an industry that thought they had every right to discharge 50,000 gallons of cyanide into the Platte River. And so, you know, you have to change people's attitudes towards that. You know, yeah. it's kind of the old school thinking that, you know, they can take whatever they have and either dump it out the back door or, or into a storm drain or down the sewer. And, that, you know, we're in a society where there's a lot of repercussions for that. Yeah. Uh, a lot of water and wastewater systems are seeing the effects of that from, you know, groundwater issues or environmental issues, you know, health and safety issues. So where do you think pretreatment's headed in the future? What are you working on now that's kind of new? And what do you see in 10, 15 years? That's well, a lot of questions. <laughs> I well, what was the first down. question there? <laughs> yeah. well, let's go with what, what, uh, what issues are, are you currently uh, involved in? The new one now is... Um, um, it's called T-norm, which is basically low-level radioactivity, uh, and that comes up with groundwater and then ends up uh, at the wastewater plant via solids. That That's one issue. Uh, how do we deal with it um, as far as how do we, you know, when it comes into the drinking water or the drinking water plant when they discharge to the wastewater plant, those, those kind of issues. Another one is, I know we're not supposed to talk about acronyms, but it's hard not to on this one. It's called PFAS. Yeah, we did a show on PFAS, so uh, yeah. I'll allow that one. Okay. I don't know how to say the real term. <laughs> well, in simplistic terms, it's a chemical that's used in many products, and it's um, Teflon, Gore-Tex, uh, those kind of things, and it's just everywhere. Apparently, they're finding it in uh, the blood of polar bears wow. and it's just a prolific chemical it was i guess uh, invented in the early 40s and pfast is an acronym for the chemical group that it is but there's thousands of them within that that group and and they're turning out to be carcinogenic and a number of health issues associated with them. So I'm remembering now it's uh, per and polyfluoroalkyl substances is uh, PFAS. Perfect. Carry on. Yeah, Sorry. perfect, Larry. <laughs> I just wanted to let the me. listeners know that I know what that is. <laughs> Uh, so that's that's uh, you know it was used in firefighting foam and that's that's kind of a dilemma you know where you know firefighting foam is a life-saving uh, material but then when it ends up into the 
the water system now it's not a life-saving substance and it can be carcinogenic so it's just one of many examples so so we're having to uh, do studies of where the possible sources are coming from and and look into how we can limit those and hopefully eliminate them good i was uh the last time which was a while ago i I tried to make an appointment again for my dentist. They they scheduled me like seven months out for a checkup. I'm like, how busy are you? When do, when do you hire another dentist when you're seven months out? I guess yeah. it's COVID, so I can't complain. Or maybe maybe it's me. It could be me. I don't know. My wife probably call in and say, I got in in two weeks. <laughs> but anyway, my point is, uh, last time I was in there, he was talking about... Uh, pre-treatment regulations as far as as dental you know requirements on dentists can you talk a little bit about what's going on there and and, uh, what the issue is with dentists Mm -hmm. yeah so this topic i have to tread lightly on because my wife is a hygienist oh all right a little conflict of interest yeah or conflict for you if i say something wrong i'll end up with full dentures Um, so EPA came out with a new regulation that we have to adhere to, and it's um, associated with uh, amalgam, uh, which is contains mercury. So when older people like myself uh, have fillings redone, you know, it, it, it generates mercury, and that gets into the waste stream. So now we're having to permit all the dentists in our, our collection area, and it's a nationwide regulation, so it's hundreds of thousands of dentists that fall under this regulation, so they have to put in amalgam traps to capture that mercury. and Catch those just, particles before they yeah. go down the drain. Mm-hmm. It always is surprising to me. Well, not really, because you look at lead pipes and look at all those. That was yeah. great. And like, look at this metal. It's so great. Mm-hmm. Same with the mercury. I'm like... For how long were we just sticking mercury in people's mouths? Now mercury oh, yeah. is like get a get a cleanup kit, call hazmat. Yeah. Yeah, we're just plunking it in people's teeth. You yeah, know? <laughs> put on your bubble suit. The dentist shows up in a bubble suit. Yeah. Are they using much mercury now, or is that an old thing? Or do we need to call your wife? And, and <laughs> can you feel this one, or can we phone a friend here? Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, actually, my wife's been a good resource for this, and um, yeah, the dental industry is shying away from the amalgamated fillings that contain mercury and, and going to non-mercury fillings. So hopefully that's going by the wayside. You know, where, where the problem runs into is when uh, a patient comes in that has those fillings, and they have to be ground out and then disposed yeah. of. Yeah. The raid came in, I think, a little bit too late because that movement's been going on for quite a while yeah. now not to, to use mercury in the, the fillings. Yeah, I, I, I was a quandary for me, too. If it's so toxic, why are they putting it in you know people's mouths? Yeah, mercury is like one of those metals like lead that's... It's got some great properties for stuff, but, mm-hmm. you, you know, if you don't consider the, the downside. I used to work in a hardware store in high school, and we sold asbestos and sheets. And I oh, remember yeah. cutting off, you know, people people come in, I need some asbestos, I'm doing some plumbing, and cut off a big sheet and score it and break it, and and no one thought different. Yeah, and yeah. Now, now it's illegal. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk future what do you think 15 20 years from now pre-treatment program you think it look any different than than today hmm boy that's that's a good question Blair um, you know when pre-treatment first came out you know it was an environment where we we're trying to get the 
industrial users to, to stop what they were doing. And now, 30 years later, hopefully that's all in line, you know, where, you know, the younger generation knows that they can't take that cyanide and dump it down the drain, whereas before that was accepted. Yeah. So, so that part of pre-treatment, I think, has been taken care of kind of the Wild West days of, of environmental regulations. But, you know, like you were saying that uh, water reuse is now getting to be a very active utility that may be used. And so I think it's even more now pre-treatment has an active role in controlling what what that wastewater plant sees and, and being able to reuse that water. So I think it's just, it's, it's going to be kind of even a sharper edge that pre-treatment has to take on controlling the waste and, and not allowing certain things to go down the drain, especially if it ends up in a drinking water plant yeah. right down the road. Yeah. It seems to be a theme on, on all these episodes, no matter what the what the area of technology always pops up is, is being involved. Can you talk a little about uh, what kind of technology you use to, to get the job done? Yeah, that's one thing I really enjoy about my job is um, maybe and it's just from my days working back at Marathon just all the different sciences and the regulations and kind of blending the two together um, you know like I was saying you know you have to be able to you know I'm, I'm, I'm to a point now I can look at the outside of a building and pretty much tell what they're doing on inside <laughs> the building so you you walk into you know we have one industry that uh, has over six thousand employees, five hundred buildings, and just anything and any anything under the sun. And so to be able to go into that industry and write a permit and to to be able to communicate what the requirements are to that industry, you know they've got a, a whole staff of lawyers that'll challenge you and. And, you know, hundreds of different types of processes. So you have to be able to kind of divide out what the processes are and how they are an environmental threat and how do the regulations apply to it. Um, So that's, you know, it gets pretty uh, technical and there's a lot lot to it. So you have to be able to do that. And then then you walk into another place that it's like walking into the dark ages where... (laughs) You know, they're doing some smeltering. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's one light bulb in the place, and you can't see across the room because of the the acid fumes. So, so a little bit of everything, and yeah. that's I. You know, it just it's it's something different every day. It seems like so being able to take all that and morph it together and and make some rationality out of the regs that's the other part of it that i really enjoy is it's it's not only water regulations but it's solid waste regulations and all sorts of other regulations and being able to kind of to guide the industry through all of them to to come to a a a passable end you know where they're they're holding they're they're containing the, the waste that they need to and and disposing them properly yeah that's got to be a good feeling at the end of the day. I mean, that's a big, that's a big job keeping uh, the environment clean. Well, thanks for uh, being here, Dave. Thanks yeah. for sharing your knowledge. It's been interesting to learn about pretreatment and what uh, pretreatment programs do. So, thanks for sharing that with us. Thank you, Blair. Are you ready for the quiz now? <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> All right. Well, since this is pretreatment. The uh, quiz today is on items predating each other. One of these items, I'm going to give you two items, 
one of them predates the other with you got to tell me which came first out of the two items and there's five of them so if you get uh you get three out of five we'll say you pay you passed okay, okay? all right <laughs> so the first uh, number one cell phones or gps which uh which item predates the other cell phones or gps Hmm. Oh boy, I would say cell phones. Oh, cell phones is correct. Right. <laughs> 1973, Motorola researcher called. You made the first cell phone call, and the first GPS satellite was launched in '78. Oh, so wow. Pretty close. A lot of these are pretty close. Pretty okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number two. Uh, which one of these predates the other? Batteries or vaccines? It's very timely. We're uh, hmm. I was talking vaccines today. Did vaccines come first or batteries? I'd say batteries. Oh, that is incorrect. Yeah. That was close to vaccines came first. Edward Jenner created the smallpox vaccine in 1796. Alessandra Volta made the first battery in 1800. So oh. it was, it was four, four years, years off. Apart. Yeah, I cut these very close. So. All right, so you're one for two. I better write these down here. Number three. Which one of these predates the other? Contact lenses. Do you wear contacts? Not anymore. No, but you use, okay, contact lenses or escalators. What do you think predates the other? Okay, I'm going to go out on the limb. Contact lenses. Oh, that is correct. Right. <laughs> 1887 for contact, which is a lot earlier than I ever thought. Wow. I think the first one was like made out of glass. Pure <laughs> glass, you just stuffed it on your eye. I don't know. And uh, the escalator was 1891. Wow. Which seems pretty early for an escalator. All right, number four. So you got two out of two out of three. You're on the, you get one more of these, you, you win. You don't win anything, but you pride, you know. <laughs> number four, the zipper. Or the ballpoint pen. Which one predates the other? The zipper. Oh, that is incorrect. Yeah. Three years after the ballpoint pen was uh, invented, the zipper came. Oh, okay. yeah, it's a tight one. <laughs> I know. These are I've made these really hard. Okay, you're two for four. This one is gonna decide it all, Dave. Which one of these predates the other? Uh, NBC on television. Or CBS on television, the NBC station, or CBS. Which one came first? Hmm. NBC. Ah, oh, CBS. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> CBS is 1939. NBC 1941. Again, pretty well. close. <laughs> pretty close. But uh, well, it was a good try, and it was a yeah. tough quiz today. <laughs> so thanks for uh, thanks for playing. I don't expect your predate knowledge to be as uh, on par as your pre-treatment knowledge. So that's, you I know I'm well. getting up in yours, but that those are before my time. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, to our uh, listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks to our sponsors, the Rocky Mountain Water Environment Association and the Colorado Wastewater Utility Council for their sponsorship. If you folks listening have uh, show ideas, send them to streamingwater at mail.com. And if you like the show, I ask that you tell a friend or a colleague and maybe they'll start listening and we can build our, build our listenership up that way. Also, if you like it, give us a review on Apple Podcasts. We need some 
Apple Podcast reviews. I don't know why, but that's uh, we need we need to up our reviews. But uh, yes, yeah, so give us a five star review on Apple Podcast if you like the show. Uh, if you got show ideas, shoot them my way. And Dave, thanks again for being on Streaming Water.